You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. My name is Max Delaney, and we're very excited to welcome you this evening for the third lecture in our um, lecture series, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, 1968-1999. This evening, we're delighted to present the third lecture in the series that takes a deeper look at critical moments that have shaped Australian art since 1968. The series explores game changes in Australian art, addressing key contemporary art exhibitions and projects staged over the last three decades of the 20th century, and reflecting on the ways that these exhibitions have shaped art history and contemporary Australian culture more broadly. To begin with, I'd like to acknowledge the Boonwurrung, traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and extends, extend our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. As always, I'd like to thank our partners, without whom the Defining Moments Australian Exhibition Histories series wouldn't be possible. I'd like to extend our heartfelt thanks to presenting partner Abercrombie and Kent, who are bespoke travel consultants for their generous long-term commitment and support of ACCA's programs and our lecture series. We're very grateful for their ongoing support. We're also pleased to welcome and acknowledge our new partnership with COVA, the Centre of Visual Arts at the University of Melbourne, who have joined ACCA in support of the lecture series as research partner. And COVA was established just last year um, to facilitate innovative research and collaborative projects with an ambition to become a leader in the field of visual art research within the Asia-Pacific region, and we look forward to working with um, COVA over the next two years and beyond. We're also very grateful to our media partners, Art Guide Australia, The Saturday Paper and Triple R, and also special thanks to our event partners, the City of Melbourne, uh, CAPI, and the Melbourne Gin Company, and I hope you're enjoying tonight um, what they've prepared for us, which is apparently is the Deliciosa Negroni Fizz with gin, Campari, and blood orange soda. Um, and now to the lecture itself. Um, we're really delighted to welcome Ian Millis to reflect upon the National Gallery of Victoria's 1973 exhibition, Object and Idea, which was curated by Brian Finnamore, and it presented new work from six Australian artists, and at the time it was considered a smaller conceptualist sequel to the landmark exhibition from 1968 called The Field, which, as you know, was restaged last year as The Field Revisited. One of the invited artists, um, one Ian Millis, declined to participate in the exhibition. Ian had already begun to move away from, as he writes, quote, the institutionalisation of all culture and into wider cultural contexts, such as working with trade unions and resident action groups, rather than working in the context of exhibitions and galleries and art audiences. So in doing so, Ian was very much at the forefront of artists who sought to expand the terms of art practice and cultural engagement into wider socio-political realms. At Brian Finnemore's request, Ian was invited instead to write an essay for the catalogue to explain his position, which was titled The um, New Artist. In the essay, Ian outlines the then nascent agency of politicised cultural activism and ideas related to social practice and relational aesthetics, which would still be some decades away. So we're really delighted to welcome Ian from Sydney, um, who's joined us um, especially for tonight's lecture. Ian is an artist, a writer and cultural activist, whose early interests in minimal and conceptual art in the late 1960s and 70s led to new forms of cultural activism with his involvement with the Sydney Green Band movement, 
the Victoria Street Resident Action Group and squatting. Um, Ian was subsequently active in protests around the Sydney Biennale, the formation of the Art Workers' Union, anti-prison and anti-uranium campaigns, sustainable farming, the Australia Council's Art and Working Life Program, and the foundation of Union Media Services. Ian is um, a sought-after artist, writer and commentator for a range of journals, and he's also a prodigious producer of social media, as many of you will know. Um, Ian was the editor of the 27 issue of Artlink on data visualisation, which explored the work of artists and other specialists using data as part of their practice for diverse art, educational and cultural outcomes. And almost exactly 12 months ago, Ian was invited to deliver the annual Evert Foundation lecture in 2018 called The Disappearance of Art. So this evening, um, Ian will be speaking about um, object and idea uh, and related subjects uh, for about 45 minutes, and after which there'll be time for questions from the audience. Uh, my colleague, Adrian Hayward, who's ACCA's Curator of Public Programs, will be on hand with a microphone, so we'd welcome questions, so please, um, um, yeah, gather them up as Ian proceeds. And without further ado, will you please join me in welcoming Ian Millis. Um, yeah, I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners. It always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Um, look, it's very big, but it's a very big type. So, <laughs> so there's a lot of pages, but um, um, look, one of the many things that annoyed me about the weird fashion for so-called theory in the 1980s wasn't just the unintelligible word salads, and the, but it was the way they were always justified as poetic. So I thought, as a nod to the era when everything began to go wrong, I might frame this talk poetically with some fragments of real poetry. So we're going to begin with the naming of parts. Um, Today we have the naming of parts. Yesterday we had daily cleaning. Tomorrow morning we shall have what to do after firing. But today we have the naming of parts. Japonica glistens like coral in all of the neighbouring gardens and today we have the naming of parts. Now when Max first approached me about this lecture, his exact words were, the idea of you speaking on object and idea from the perspective of your catalogue essay would be ideal and an opportunity to point to wider contexts and developments beyond the realm of art institutions. So let's start with some of that wider context. Since World War II, Australia has been a sort of freelance vassal state in a never ending quest to fit into the prevailing global political hegemony. Um, one way we do this culturally is by taking the parochial history of the centre of empire, whichever empire we're part of at the time, and using it as a template to mould our understanding of the cultural activity happening here. We find and reward the Australian artists that resemble known foreign models, and we neglect those that don't. This is what Ruart Lewis once described as the art import substitution racket. It's a, it's a neurotic colonial refusal to grow up culturally. At the end of the 1960s, when object and idea was just a twinkle in Brian Finnamore's eye, this wasn't even that, rather, I should say. This cultural neurosis was playing out in its usual way. Finnamore and his assistant curator, John Stringer, caused outrage by opening the new National Gallery of Victoria with The Field, a major exhibition of young abstract artists, the first baby boomers to reach adulthood, rather than the older established Antipodeans. I'm sure you all saw the restaging, right? Um, 
The Antipodeans represented art as settler colonial identity politics, a rearguard action by the, by the Anglo invaders as they were being slowly themselves overcome by post-war European immigrants who, while bringing their own eth ethnic cultures, also brought genuine, sophisticated modernism. The European immigrant modernists tended to see the arts as the essence of life for everyone rather than a perverse indulgence of the posh. And embedded in that was also a belief that art and daily life could be one. This modernism was initially strongest in architecture and design and later manufactured in cultural infrastructure itself. I've argued elsewhere that the foundation of the Sydney Biennale began in, um, uh, again in 1973, like, like the Object and Idea exhibition, was both an instrument and an outcome of the multicultural ascendancy. This is Franco Belgiornonetis, who founded Transfield, who also founded the, uh, the Biennale, taking Gough Whitlam on a tour of the first Biennale because suddenly he had the instrument to do that, you know, the opportunity to do that. Um, so so uh, it was both an instrument and an outcome of the multicultural ascendancy, as also were Caldor's projects beginning in 69 with Christo and and Jean-Claude's Rap Coast. Um, the scale and the ambition and the sheer bravado of the field swept all that colonialist heroics aside. There could be no doubt that abstraction was now the dominant form. Um, as the most important person involved, Brian Finnamore uh, was undoubtedly a larger-than-life character. It's often repeated that Gordon Thompson described him as the last of the boulevardiers, and the reason it's so often repeated is that it described him perfectly. He was a man of enormous culture and sophistication, but he was wickedly playful. He had a haughtiness, which was a sort of weird combination of left politics and snobbishness. He was born in South Yarra, and he described moving to East Melbourne as being forced to live in the suburbs. And <laughs> as the first ever curator of Australian art at the NGV, he'd acquired almost a third of the Australian works in the collection by the time of his death in, in 1975. Um, but his catalogue biography for Object and Idea uh, described the, the gallery as the infertile soil where he had laboured for 15 years. So how many curators in this age of precarious employment you know, would actually dare to describe their employer so irreverently in a major catalogue? You know? And his biography also, says, his biography in that catalogue also says he, he pursues an aggressive policy of gallery involvement with contemporary art in society. This was undoubtedly true, and I can't think of any Australian curators who produced not one but two exhibitions that so defined their times. And that brings us to the exhibition. Brian was always quite clear that he saw object and idea as a, as a counterpoint to um, the field, um, that it would establish conceptualism in Australia in the same way that the field had established post-painterly abstraction. This was still a time when the role of the institutions was almost uncriticised, and when they could still be seen as delivering an imprimatur to the unruly and inchoate doings of artists, bestowing an aura of legitimacy and official acceptance. But despite my respect and affection for Brian, I didn't see it like that. I'd seen the field as an end rather than a beginning. And the official recognition is more like a death certificate. To the chagrin of many of the artists involved, um, that's how the field had soon turned out. Rather than a 20-year reign they may have hoped for, they were soon already out of fashion. You can see the coming changes even in the exhibition itself, whether it's in Vernon Troik's hippie-ish kaleidoscopic images or Ian Burns' mirror works. 
The era of dominant non-objective art was ending as soon as it began. And that brings us to the naming of the name. Although the name object and idea seems to be a clear counterposing of art in the form of objects, like most of the work in the field, and art as ideas that at the very least were invisible, like, say, Robert Barry's carrier wave, for instance, um, a radio transmission only known to its carry audience via a text describing its invisible presence. But the word object had a more loaded connotation at the time, made clear in Donald Brooks' power lecture that had followed Clement Greenberg's 1968 inaugural power lecture at Sydney University. While Greenberg's lecture seemed appropriate in the year which also saw the field, and following on the very powerful 67 touring exhibition, Two Decades of American Painting, Brooks' 1969 lecture and the publicity surrounding Christian Jean-Claude's Rap Coast that year made it clear that the intellectual basis of Greenbergian formalist abstraction was in question. This is Donald in his rather famous feathered office um, at, the, at the Power Institute, which he had for many years. Um, Brooks' lecture began with seven different ways the term was used by art critics, the term object was used by art critics, but most importantly as hermetic objects devoid of context. Greenberg and his followers like Michael Fried saw minimalism's rejection of illusionistic space as a movement towards objecthood, which in Fried's thinking put them in a condition of non-art. Uh, now, Brooke, on the other hand, saw it as an engagement with context and the world, the beginning of a new art that should be appraised in terms of its external relations rather than rejected because of them. This put art in a position of radical exploration of the world rather than a rarefied, autonomous, closed world in its own right. And when combined with his refreshingly abrupt dismissal of what he saw as the fake controversies of figuration versus abstraction and nationalism versus internationalism, it opened up a whole new freedom of action for any Australian artist willing to take it up. Not only does the exhibition title allude to these debates, but so also did the catalogue essay titles, New Art, New Aesthetic, New Artist, New Museum. In another 1969 essay titled, Is There a New Art? published in the Current Affairs Bulletin, Brooke concluded, if one insists, as one ought, on putting the deeper questions about the nature and purpose of art, on knowing what it's made for, then the answer that this generation seems to be on the verge of proposing is that art is public and participatory, and its objects are not the precious incarnations of artists' feelings. And that was exactly what I was on the verge of proposing. That comment, in retrospect, was the heart of my future work and my compromised involvement in object and idea. But there were many anomalies surrounding the exhibition. To begin with, it wasn't the first major Australian exhibition of what could loosely be called conceptual art. Leaving aside the numerous private gallery exhibitions that already have happened, the first institutional exhibition had probably really been that selected by Harold Zaman, titled, I Want to Leave a Nice, Well-Done Child Here. This was sponsored by John Caldor and shown in Sydney um, at, and at the NGV in 1971. Right? So the conceptual train had long since left the station by 19, late 1973. To add to the confusion, 
None of the work of the exhibition fitted the already well-defined models of conceptual art, um, of documentation of work that was invisible or at least not present in the gallery, nor textual work like, say, Larry Wiener's, nor critical analysis of the type being produced by art and language. Um, it didn't even conform to Donald Brooks' broader description of post-object art. It's what I've come to describe as conceptual-esque, um, a form of production that conforms to all the requirements of the institutional mainstream while also maintaining the illusion of mild non-conformity. Um, the conceptual-esque has dominated official art ever since the mid-70s. Um, it's probably the longest-running art movement in world history. Um, not surprisingly, object and idea copped exactly the same criticism as the field, that the work failed because it copied foreign art but at the same time it failed because it was not good enough, uh, not a good enough copy of foreign art. And anyway, it copied out of date foreign art. So or as Patrick McCackie put it, a pallid provincial and undernourished cousin of New York art of two years ago and more. Um, this, this is a criticism that echoed the earlier attacks on the field, except that McCackie had actually strongly rebutted those at the time because he was involved in the field. Um, these criticisms you know, were, of course, absurd, but deeply rooted in the contradictions of a colonial mentality. All of the artists involved were well aware of what was, what was happening elsewhere, but you know, they were original and innovative artists in their own right. Um, so finally, we named the artists. There's no doubt there were some of the best, that they were some of the best artists of the time, although had I been picking it, I probably would have added another two or three. Um, it's an interesting reflection on different times that even the NGV has only five images of the exhibition and all of them were taken during setup. None of them actually show you what the exhibition looked like or what the individual works were. That's probably the one exception. Um, John, um, this is John Armstrong's work. John Armstrong's data and surrealist influence constructions were here at their largest scale ever. But John moved to Queensland to become a, a community cultural development, in, into community cultural development and become a public art consultant, which he successfully sees still to this day. So in his way, he found several things more meaningful than the manufacture of art world product. Tony Colling, this is, this is his work, again, only half assembled. Um, Tony Colling's witty plastic sculptures had been a highlight of the field, and they'd become increasingly elaborate environments satirising Australian life, particularly suburbia. For many years since, he's painted political satires whose quality, I think, is only now becoming understandable. And he's an artist definitely due for renewed attention. Alex Danko hardly needs introduction, I would have thought, in Melbourne. He still shows often. He's a show on right now at Iron Sutton's, I think. And he's always had a sardonic take on Australian life and our awkward relationship to high culture. He and Imans Tillers were both children of immigrants and their early experience of Anglo-Australia has always added a subtle bite to their work. But NGV has no photo of his object and idea work, but this is other work from the catalogue that he used as catalogue illustrations. Nigel Lendon, on the other hand, um, like Alex, was actually from Adelaide, but he was from a sort of very Adelaide establishment background. He spent the next few years of the 1970s in New York, where he fell into the art language group or cult, you could almost call it, and he and I were to work together with other art language refugees, Ian Byrne and Terry Smith, in the Media Action Group before he moved to work at the Canberra School of Art. 
Um, he still exhibits invisible sculptures. Ty Parks um, was English, really. He only spent a few years in Australia. His serial drawings prefigured an approach that, that valued process over individual works and could perhaps be seen as symbolic of future commodification in a way. Um, he returned to live in the UK not all that much later, and he's, but he still regularly exhibits abstract paintings in Australia at Charles and Odrums and a few other galleries, I think. Imant, Imant's Tillers, um, who went on to become the most prominent artist of his generation, you know, a major figure whose work should be seen less as appropriation and more as a rather crushing comment on how our European culture is as stolen as the land we stand on. He may not agree with that interpretation, I would add. Um, the, this drawing is from the catalogue, gives some idea of this elaborate systemic work that he set up for it. Uh, again, there's, the only picture of him is him and some of the attendants dragging the box around that it, that it was in, right? Now, the four catalogue essays were by Finnamore, John Stringer, his field co-curator, who by this time was working at MoMA in New York, and Gregory Heath, who was a young curator and academic, and myself. Now, the awkwardness of my essay its aggressively critical tone and clumsy writing made it clear that it was not a normal catalogue essay, but nor was it a work of art similar, say, to the art language model of presenting critical essays on the gallery wall as artworks. Brian had suggested that, but I rejected it. So it had an ambiguous status as an art gesture camouflaging itself as a different type of art gesture. Uh, in writing it, I finally had to think through problems that I'd been dealing with in complicated forms of practice rather than theoretical way. Um, the first time I ever had to write in this way. So this is section two, another poem. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood and I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference. And so with a self-aggrandizing poem and a, and a sigh, here I am, ages and ages hence, telling how choices made 45 years ago made all the difference. <laughs> Around late 1967, when Finnamore and John Stringer were organising the field, I was already starting to show with Central Street Gallery, doing large, shaped, modular canvases. When he, when he later commented that he'd seen them, I complained about being left out of the field, and he looked rather sternly down his nose at me and said, Dear boy, we couldn't include a 17-year-old in a major national exhibition. And then he added, but don't worry, in a few years I'll do another one just for you. <laughs> I wouldn't read too much into that because that was his sort of sense of humour. But, but in a way he was soon as good as his word. Much to the chagrin of many of the field generation, um, within a year when he was appointed to select invitees for the 1970 Transfer Prize, the most valuable and prestigious art prize of the time, I was one of only two Central Street artists invited, the other being Gunnar Christman. My early acceptance into Central Street meant that without ever attending an art school, I'd got an accelerated art education while I was still in high school, mentored by Central Street artists like Tony McGillick. But the pressing political issues of the time, like the Vietnam War, which I could have been conscripted to fight in, drove me towards a highly critical approach. 
I was hardly alone. This was happening throughout the world to artists in every art form as the criticism of political institutions rapidly led to a critical analysis of all sorts of other institutions. Um, there were many other steps along the way, but by 1970... Oops, deleted the wrong one. <laughs> but by 1970, the gallery itself had become my material by making wall patterns with the gallery lighting or just rearranging the furniture at, at Blackstone Gallery. In other words, I'd moved from formalism to the problem of making an art indistinguishable from life. Working with the gallery architecture made me increasingly aware of the people in the gallery and their movements, so I began making installa installations that needed to be navigated by the viewer. This, this is one of these, walk along this line. That was the, actual, the work I actually had in the 1970 transfer field prize at Brian's uh, invitation. By 1971, um, my circular tug of war in Caldor's project number two, the Harold Zaman exhibition, um, demanded the viewer had to cooperate with others to then compete with the others. Um, it was a textbook example of what 25 years later was called relational aesthetics. Um, Burio defined relational aesthetics as a set of artistic practices which take as their theoretical and practical point of departure the whole of human relations and their social context rather than an independent and private space where the artist can and where the artist can more accurately, accurately be viewed as the catalyst in relational art, relational art rather than being at the centre. But I struggled to find a way out of the gallery context, sending letters to friends suggesting pointless changes to, their, to the way they occupied their houses, while my entry in the Young Contemporaries Prize was simply a letter to the judges suggesting that I'd earned the prize by getting the most publicity in the preceding year, which, as we all know, is exactly how you do win prizes, but but you're not usually supposed to say it quite so upfront. Um, I didn't get the prize, by the way. <laughs> My final exhibited work was a chalk drawing on the floor called Life in One Room. The people walking over it uh, wiped it out almost without trace, which seemed a fitting end to my exhibiting career for almost the next 20 years. But could I work with the invisible infrastructure of the art world instead, rather than the physical infrastructure of the galleries? I got myself seconded onto the Contemporary Art Society Committee and set about expanding their small newsletter into a larger publication filled with a range of content pinched from all sorts of places, rather like the way, rather like the way um, one might um, link to articles today in social media. It's probably why I've taken to social media so, so well. Um, there was everything from art school news to documents from the Guerrilla Art Action Group in New York, from Henri Lefebvre to copies of the artist contract developed by the New York Art Workers Coalition, which was my first move towards an artist union. I even slipped in some Chinese socialist realism, um, which was an extreme heresy given earlier battles in the contemporary art society between abstractionists and social realists. And I reprinted speeches from Sydney City Council on development proposals for inner city areas where artists lived. It all seems so innocuous now, but at the time it was regarded as an unseemly intrusion of real life into, into the sacred space of art. Um, it was these urbanist issues that got me interested in the Builders Labourers Federation, who had instituted their first green ban at Kelly's Bush in 1971. 
I became involved in the fight to preserve the Theatre Royal and was the CAS representative on a committee of art organisations to support the struggle. It was my entree into serious politics where I met not just the BLF leaders like Jack Mundy, but also unionists from Actors' Equity and theatrical employees and the rising ALP politician Neville Rand, who was very soon to become New South Wales Premier. Um, but it was a, the beginning of an even more radical change in my approach. Every step in my progress over the previous three or four years had followed a strict logic that reduced the gap between my art and the real world by removing exhibition as the defining factor in favour of, of a social space, the art world, I had reduced my definition of art from what is known now as the institutional definition of art, that's, you know, something's art because we, the art world, say it's art, to a definition that something was art because it perpetuated the institutional and ideological power of the art world in relation to the wider society. So when in 1973 the area where I lived off Victoria Street and King's Cross came under attack from developers, I went one further step. The ensuing violence against the resident action group that we set up included a kidnapping, bashings, a death in a fire and eventually a murder. We began a large-scale squat to protect the buildings, the first in Australia since the 1940s, but in February 1974 we were all arrested in an, in an operation in, involving hundreds of police um, it was traumatic, it was terrifying, but it was also exhilarating. In other words, it really was like a war. And it was during this time, exactly this time, in mid-1973, that I was writing my essay for Object and Idea. I think it's probably obvious then why I felt Object and Idea, like the field, was an end rather than a beginning. Because I said so, um, I can claim the dubious achievement of declaring conceptual art dead before most people even knew it was alive. Uh, and and just, just as its 40 years of institutional dominance was beginning, which I think just to show, to show how little I know, really, I think. Um, but I suspect Brian may have been the only other person who actually agreed with me, and that's why he was so determined that I had to be included in some way. I told him that I was trying to develop a different way of working, and though I still didn't know where it was going, I did know it meant I wouldn't really have anything to exhibit it. His solution was to push me hard to write an essay instead about why I wouldn't exhibit anything. He even used emotional blackmail, that he was ill, he wouldn't live long, the exhibition was his swan song, and because we were friends, he really wanted me to be in it. Now, I took all this with a grain of salt, but I wondered later if he really did have a premonition of his death, even if he could never have foreseen his awful murder that we all know about, right? Um, artists talk, of course, artists talking about why they boycotted a show is almost a genre in its own right now, um, but I think, so, so possibly I could claim, lay claim to that as well, um, but I think my reluctance indicated to him that there were already moves beyond conceptualism, that a fissure was developing between those will, willing to collaborate in sustaining the institutional art world and the small majority like me who wanted something entirely different. So, the essay. The exhibition had a selection of the best art of the time and with the essay it even incorporated some token dissent. And that was at the heart of my essay, what Herbert Marcuse had called repressive tolerance and the ability of the capitalist system to absorb and profit even from attempts to oppose it. To summarise the essay, 
I was overcome with the realisation that art, as it was defined and presented to my generation, was mostly a weapon of class politics, the use of cultural activity to legitimise ill-gotten gains, but also to ring-fence creative agency in the world, to commoditise and limit creativity. As Adorno had said, culture, by the mere fact of its existence, prohibits the sociological changes that it promises. But at the same time, I hadn't read Adorno. I hadn't yet read Adorno, and nor I suspected many others in the Australian art world. The essay wasn't very long, only about 1,300 words. It could be read in a few minutes. I was told by someone, maybe Graham Sturgeon, that Finnamore said it was his favourite thing in the exhibition, but I don't know if that's really true. Most of the art world, I think, saw it as a sort of self-immolation, a career suicide note summarised by the question I was asked repeatedly in the following years, you were doing so well, why did you give it up? <laughs> that, that just amused me, but I was more bothered by my feeling that it was badly written, lacking in subtlety. You know, I could excuse myself by my youth, I was you know, 21 or 22 when I was writing it, but rereading it now, I feel that less so. And I think the reason is that our society has deteriorated so dramatically since then, the things I felt were a bit exaggerated look almost understated now. <laughs> and, and the essay never went away. Almost immediately it was being taught in art schools and in the decades since it's been quoted many times in many contexts, which I suppose is why I'm here tonight. From, from the beginning, the essay framed a conflict between the broader society and the ruling class with the art world as one of its collaborators. Quote, the society in which we live has a vested interest in preventing any realisation that all people can act creatively, that almost everyone is an artist in the way of his work, in the area of his interests, in the manner that he views the world. Now, I'd realised that art was not some eternal truth, but rather a useful ideology, a fairly recent aberration whose claimed autonomy was in fact a social mechanism for money laundering and ratifying status, of, of declaring that those who had wealth were special and deserved their wealth, just as certain artists were special. I, th I felt that artists were not meant to be camouflaging the rich, rather they should be working closer to the daily life of a wider community. And quote, again, the avowed claim of much 20th century art has been to bring about social cultural change. This had never really been an aim of previous art, although it was often a slight result. The existing power structures in society are fought back by developing culture as something separate from the common world. This has been reinforced by the distortion of history to present the culture of the ruling class in any era as the only culture, ignoring all evidence to the contrary. Next, I had already developed a clear understanding of the link between cultural change and political change and a perception that official institutional culture effectively broke that link imprisoned cultural change so its consequences could not threaten the political status quo. Again, quote, cultural change and political change form an equation which results in each being the cause of the other, one impossible without the other. The substitution of official culture for everyday life, real culture, in, in the general consciousness is the means capitalist society uses to break the connection. Since we are all brought up with this false view of cultural history, we are all alienated from our real history and are therefore unable to interpret our experience vis-a-vis -vis society properly. Next, the essay suggested how to deal with the conundrum of being trapped in a system that could grow stronger by appropriating all criticism to its own ends. 
what Marcuse called repressive tolerance, a term that infuriated quadrant-reading right-wingers who were adamant that tolerance could never be characterised as repressive. I proposed working anonymously, embedded in community rather than operating individualistically. Quote, the only viable solution seems to be, live as, be to live as anonymously as possible, spreading your ideas or insights no further than people you actually know. And finally, it yet again posed the integration of art into daily life as part of a cultural and political pro program to regain greater personal agency and control of life overall. I wrote, once the monopoly of artists over creativity and culture is broken, it becomes possible for people to create real history and real change from their own personal experience. This is what art really is, and for obvious reasons it cannot be found in art galleries, nor in exhibitions, nor in books. Only by discarding the concept altogether and then acting on our own awareness, changing our lives, does the concept gain any meaning. Perhaps I even had an inkling that one day I would be sitting here today when I wrote, the concept of culture heroes, for example, has as its mainstay the belief that people become famous because of some innate personal quality, even if their ideas are radical or anti-establishment. In fact, nobody, while still alive, becomes famous and therefore powerful in our society unless their fame will in the long run help perpetuate the status quo. Um, we've reprinted it. You've all got copies of it there, so you can read it yourselves. Um, by the time the exhibition opened, I was too deeply involved in the Victoria Street squats to notice or care about object and idea. In the months after we were finally thrown out, in early 1974, I had time to consider what I could do next. Think about what I'd written and my perception that people who were regarded as insignificant, like builders' labourers, could in fact be the most important cultural innovators. Uh, so I said about doing things like writing an art criticism of how to build a barricade and what, um, you know, the, the aesthetics of barricade building. <laughs> um, I realised cultural activism was the real issue and it could take any form. I soon came, came across the work of, of the agricultural innovator P.A. Yeomans and I approached the outgoing New South Wales about doing a project show about him that treated him as an artist, presenting his farming techniques, his industrial design, publications, etc. This was in the way you would present an artist. This was not intended as a sort of Duchampian appropriation, but rather its opposite. It was, was recognising the creativity of someone who wasn't normally seen as an artist. Um, it was a time when artists rarely curated exhibitions, and, and certainly not exhibitions of people who didn't even claim to be artists. But Daniel Thomas came from a farming background, knew about, you'd never think so if you'd know him, you know, um, um, knew all about Yeomans and strongly supported it, as did the director and the other creators. When the trustees finally got wind of it in late 1975, only a few months before it was due to open, they intervened to cancel it on the basis that it was an agricultural trade show, not art. Um, it was mostly forgotten until a summarised version of the proposed show in its history. It was in a 2011 exhibition here at Acker. Um, curated by Hannah Matthews. That brought it to light again and we got a sort of slightly embarrassed note from the art gallery saying, would we care to put in another application to do it again? So, so which led to it finally being staged at the Art Gallery in New South Wales in 2013, only 38 years late. Uh, 
But among the many other projects of the mid to late 1970s, I was also involved in the formation of the anti-prison groups, Women Behind Bars and the Prisoners Action Group, protests which eventually led to a Royal Commission into Prisons and some short-lived reforms. That came about because we'd all been arrested so many times by this, you know, we, we got to know what prisons were like. Um, I was also working with other artists on a series of protests demanding 50% Australian artists and 50% women in the Sydney Biennale. I mean, you will notice that through all of this, there have been no women artists mentioned up until now. And that basically was a characteristic of the art world at the time. Um, and so, you know, it was just the, the start of a serious fight back against that. Oops, I missed that. That's the Yeoman Show. As it finally ended up at the Art Go New South Wales. And this is some of our, uh, the things we published around the Sydney Biennale. Um, this was a sort of early crowdsourcing where we asked the whole art world to just write, write us a letter saying what they thought should happen and how it should be done. And we, and we just published them all in this whole, whole uh, we did a whole publication of them. Um, we protested at every Biennale from its inception until the 1980s. Uh, and these protests eventually resulted in the creation of the Art Workers' Union in 1980. That's the first committee. Um, you may recognise, I'm, I'm the person in the middle holding the sign, but there are people like Tim Burns, Charles Merriweather, Ann Stevens, Nigel Lendon, Ian Byrne, um, Viv Binns, um, Virginia Holster, there's like, it's Gregor Cullen, um, Ross Wolf. I mean, these are all people who are really well known over the next few years. Um, a different project initiated by, by Frank Waters, I just assisted, uh, was a series of exhibitions in Hunter Valley Towns, north of Sydney, using local art and craft works to investigate attitudes to the proposed coal mining that has since turned much of the valley into a gigantic ruin. Frank and I spent months producing what became for many years the Australia Council's model of community engagement. Uh, by then, in the late 1970s, formalism was over and political art was everywhere. There was Peter Kennedy's work with community groups as disparate as embroiderers and bikies. There was Tim Burns' various exploding provocations. Um, Dave Morrissey, almost forgotten now, is the earliest guerrilla gardener in Mildura and Woolloomooloo in Sydney. And the the end of the 1970s, Viv Bin's Artists in Community Project, Mother's Memories and Other Memories, was a real landmark. A huge mural movement um, and a political poster movement had grown up. Like in Sydney, it started at the Tin Sheds, which was in that photo, where, where that earlier photo was taken. Um, it was less radical in the sense that it still saw image making as the priority, but more radical than most of the art world because it was art for the street and for practical use, not for exhibitions and, and consumer, your consumption and collection. Um, I, on the other hand, stuck with my McLuhanish position that the medium was ultimately more important than the content and that the most important activity was setting up processes and collaborations that generated activity. The art world, however, had mostly decided by already by then that it was easier to think of me as someone who'd given up being an artist than it was to rethink their limited idea of what an artist might do. 
Around that time, the late 1970s, the several Australians who'd become associated with art and language in New York, Ian Byrne, Terry Smith and Nigel Lendon, regathered in Sydney. They'd theorised themselves into believing that activism was the way forward from, art, from the art and language dead end, but activism in art and language had mostly consisted of waging war against each other with bombardments of dull prose. And um, they, they proposed a group to produce critiques of media and a dozen or so others of us set up the Media Action Group, which was um, producing slideshows and analysing media treatment of issues like advertising or uranium mining. When we were approached by a trade union journalist, Dale Keeling, to work on a monthly newspaper for the ATEA, the Telecommunications Union, the others were all in regular employment. So I started working with Dale. And these are um, just blown up pages out of a very small selection of the many newspapers that Dale and I just produced in that first year or so. Um, building on our union contacts, with, within 18 months we had developed a serious business with a growing workforce, publishing many union journals and working on campaigns. This became Union Media Services Proprietary Limited, the first social marketing business in Australia, focused purely on political and cultural campaigning. Ian came to work for it, Nigel Terry joined the board. One of our clients was the Australia Council and Ian and I began working closely with them on their newly developed trade union based art access program, the Art and Working Life program. We wrote and designed publications, we set up a syndicated news service to distribute pre-formatted stories to union journals and Ian even later curated an exhibition of, of work that had been done for the program. Union Media Services was a roller coaster as we suffered the disaster of success. We went through years of ups and downs with personal and artistic disagreements but above all business problems caused by undercapitalisation in the face of rapid growth and a shared lack of business skills. Um, nothing destroys a relationship as completely as financial problems, um, as many a divorce will attest. You know? um, in our ensuing acrimonious divorce in the mid-1980s, Ian got control of the business, but he also got all the problems. Um, as compensation, he assumed art world bragging rights, but I got the trade union movement bragging rights. So free at last, I went on to work on my own for a smaller number of unions, then in 1990 became a national research officer for one of the biggest unions, the Miscellaneous Workers Union, where I set up a state-of-the-art computerised publication unit producing mainstream media production quality, you know, colour magazines, and a numerous innumerable smaller targeted publications. Um, we, we particularly went out of our way to do things like where someone would have had a daggy, had a beautiful model, we put a daggy worker, you know, like in, in the, but in other ways we laid them out and designed that so they look like new idea, you know, but with very unglamorous people instead of glamorous people. And um, it was a conscious game that we played with these things. Um, Basically, that's who the audience were, and so we made them for that audience. Right? Nothing. Um, I was also appointed to the ACTU Arts Committee, helped rewrite the union movement's arts industry policy, gave occasional media courses at the Trade Union Training Authority, but I'd reached the end of my ambition with unions. I mean, this had been, you know, like by this stage, you know, we're getting up into the early 90s. I mean, I'd been 
playing around with unions for like 20 years by that stage, you know. Um, but it, it could be summarised by saying that Dale and I had dreamed we could create a sort of alternative mass media by syndicating the content in professionally produced trade union journals. And on the whole, we'd succeeded. There were similar operations to union media in every state, and unions had adopted a communication model that combined in-house desktop publishing and contracted services. So that was over. Um, no more meetings, endlessly repeating, you need to understand we're in a cultural war. Um, I lost that one. And the unions paid dearly for having positioned themselves as just service organisations when Howard set out to destroy them. But that's another story. And I have to admit that after this, over the next 10 years or more, I pretty much gave up. Right? This is the 90s, you know, into the early 2000s. I occasionally appeared in group and solo exhibitions offered by hopeful dealers, but most of the art world just ignored me. I mean, I describe this as my art therapy period where I did some aimless work more for personal entertainment than anything, but I was depressed and isolated, and it wasn't an art world I found very congenial. Uh, it seemed pretty much the end. This is about reaching the end, really, in a way. Keep Ithaca in, always in your mind. Arriving there is what you're destined for, but don't hurry the journey at all. Better if it lasts for years, so you're old by the time you reach the island. Wealthy with all you've gained on the way, not expecting Ithaca to make you rich. Ithaca gave you the marvellous journey. Without her, you wouldn't have set out. She's nothing left to give you now. And if you find her poor, Ithaca won't have fooled you. Wise as you will have become, so full of experience, you'll have understood by then what these Ithacas mean. So... I had reached my Ithaca in the early 2000s, but I wasn't wise and I wasn't rich and I was just rather battered and depressed. Now, Max's brief implied that I had the rather tricky task of assessing my own influence. Um, it's fairly easy. I think I had so little influence in the art world that I was, that I was, I was probably only spoken of as a bad example. <laughs> in, the in the union movement, I'd had some influence, but that was quickly forgotten. Things really hadn't developed as I'd hoped. Under neoliberalism, the complexity of society is completely homogenised as everything must be monetised. Uh, we then face the problem of defining where meaningful cultural activity actually resides. The art that I criticised in 1973 was at least ambiguous. By the early 2000s, it was unambiguously just a business model serving the needs of the wealthy, money laundering, conspicuous consumption as power display, gambling, all built on content that often has political pretensions, but as much political effect as you know, printing Karl Marx's face on poker chips. The majority of art is now political in some sense. How could it not be? But it has no effect because the system simply by simply existing, renders it all into harmless niche consumerism, as Adorno indicated. Right? Internationally, the art market had boomed, profiting from what were really marketing movements rather than art movements, like appropriation or neo-expressionism or zombie formalism. Um, biennales were repurposed as parts of the entertainment and tourism industries and developed their own genre of bloated bland content, um, 
The Art and Working Life program had long since lost its funding during the Howard years, and the Australia Council had quietly censored its own history, throwing out its records, even its library, which I would say a big lump of which now sits in front yard in Sydney, who rescued it all from a, from a skip out in front of the building. Um, it, it set about uh, pretending that it never even had any reason to exist except to subsidise the entertainment of the rich, which is sort of what tends to do these days. And in the endless search for new content, the institutions developed ways of absorbing the work that had developed outside the market system, whether it was activism or graffiti and street art. Terms like relational aesthetics sounded good in theory, but in practice were used to promote parodies of activist art with the politics removed. It was Tino Segal's pointless hassling of gallery goers rather than, say, say Merle Laterman Ukele's 50 years of amazing work with the New York Sanitation Department, where in one instance she spent five years tracking down, shaking the hand and thanking every single worker for the contribution they had made to civilised urban life. This is 8,500 poor, uneducated people working in shit jobs, being treated with some respect. So, despite the early optimistic hopes, um, not, nor despite the early optimistic hopes, has meaningful cultural activity come to reside in the alternative distribution and production systems of the internet, because they're so overwhelmingly the tools of corporate and state surveillance. For me, this is particularly disappointing, given my interest has been in cultural innovators outside the art world. Sadly, it can be argued that social media is where much of that radical impetus really ended in every sense of the word. Social media, where everyone can be their own artist, their own, have their own video channel on YouTube, distribute their own photos, prints, drawings, writing, reviews, poems, memes, journalism, you know, without the need of a gallery or a publisher, is where our art really has become life. The problem with that is that life has become shit. <laughs> rather, than, rather than representing cultural freedom, social media has come to represent another form of exploitation based on a different neoliberal business model of data harvesting. So no matter what we hoped, we now know for certain there is no outside. We are all inside the system. We have fought innumerable demons and reached Ithaca only to find it impoverished and our enemies in power. Now, what would a lecture be without some really overt mansplaining? It's a, it's just, um, it's a, this is, oh heart, oh blood that freezes, blood that burns, earth's returns for whole centuries of folly, noise and sin. Shut them in with their triumphs and their glories and the rest. Love is best. So what next? You know, we're at the present. What next? If art is at most still, if, if art as most still conventionally understand it no longer exists, and if its alternatives are all equally compromised, if activist art is as powerless as the establishment system it opposed, if all that is solid really has melted into air, does it matter? Anyone who has their eyes wide open, as I did back in 1973, can easily see where we're headed. We need cultural activism more than ever. We 
need art as business, not at all, but it must be a different form of activism. Climate catastrophe and mass extinction are looming, not in the distance, but virtually tomorrow, with less than a decade left, not just to stop CO2 pollution, but to begin, begin reversal on a large scale. Do you see that happening? I mean, I certainly don't. And the recently named blathering of, of, of politicians about whether it was a good idea to legislate for 50% electric cars by 2030 shows how infuriatingly inadequate our politicians are. They really do find it easier to accept an end to the world than an end to capitalism, as Isaac said. Um, looking at them lined up last, last week, I was reminded of another thing McLuhan had said, if you'll forgive the pun, um, our age of anxiety is in great part the result of trying to do today's jobs with yesterday's tools. The whole, the whole issue of the intersection of conventional art and cultural activism, the illusion of autonomy in daily life under constant surveillance, these things are all intimately bound up in our possible but unlikely survival. The priority now is to develop cultural activity that was, would facilitate fixing the mess we're in. Um, in 2003, my wife and I moved to Wollarawang, a small industrial town near Lithgow. Um, it's an extraordinarily beautiful area that's seriously damaged by coal mining. Um, part of my rationale was that you must be in the place that needs to change. You must understand the people whose lives are dependent on the crisis continuing. The 10 years we spent there accidentally resulted in the Candos School of Cultural Adaptation. Um, this is a poster which was done for an arts festival where, in the town of Candos, where I basically created a fake Candos that didn't exist at all. Um, this, is, this, is, um, this is based on years of frustration in Lithgow where I'd you know, been on all these council committees and managed to change absolutely nothing. Um, so I, created, I recreated Candos as a different place. Right? Um, including have a Candos University and a School of Cultural Adaptation, which led the world in climate change issues. Right? Um, um, so, so um, but we'd accidentally created the Candos School of Cultural Adaptation when, when some of the artists there actually sort of said, oh, well, why don't we actually do this, you know, and set about doing it. So it's now, it now exists as a group of 15 artists, architects, others who are involved in practical experimental projects um, that are mostly about developing a sustainable agriculture, but also around commoning, bikes, hemp and so on. So it's not entirely bleak. These are younger artists who have developed genuinely radical practices based on what they learned from relational aesthetics. I'm thinking of people like Lucas Eileen, Diego Benetto, Gilbert Grace, um, um, Sarah Breen Lovett, who is actually here tonight. Um, but um, developing practical experiments in areas like sustainable agriculture, um, but they're the exception rather than the rule. It was because of my involvement with them after they found me around 15 years ago that I've returned to some sort of art practice, finally surrounded by an activist group that I'd hoped would have appeared 30 years earlier. The others do far more work than me, but underlying it all is my initial approach to create a framework for activity and then let it, just let it fill itself in with lots of other people and ideas. And increasingly, it involves that awareness that there is no outside. We are all locked in here together, so the most innovative and adaptive cultural actions must involve developing collaborations, mutual actions, a communal sense of self rather than an individual sense of self. And most recently, 
a need to grieve before we can move forward, you know, optimistically without hope is the way I'd, I'd put it. I'm not advocating any sort of compromise with denialists. I'm talking about how we organise to unforgivingly defeat them, utterly destroy them, but then more importantly, how we might set out to clean up the mess in the centuries to follow. Fundamental to that is the need to understand humans differently, to generate cultural memes that support and bind us into cooperation, to manage the world rather than separate us, to exploit each other and assets strip the world the way cap the capitalism meme does. Deep inside the art into life ideal was probably a nostalgia for a simpler life that in fact had never existed, although I have to say that traditional Aboriginal life may have been a good approximation, a life rich with symbolism but with a minimal material culture. I don't want to return to that, although we may involuntarily, but I can see a different culture that we could develop in the ruins of our alienated and destructive material culture. Don't get me wrong, I'm not a touchy-feely sentimentalist. I'm far more inclined to a sort of brutal realism. But purely as a pragmatic matter of survival, we need to create a culture that has a love of all life on the planet, that sees humanity's superior skills as something to be used to maintain the planet rather than loot it. The cultures we now need to make must not be for ourselves, but for all the other creatures to enhance their lives rather than ours, because surely by now we've worked out we can't live without them. The planet, on the other hand, can survive without us. It'll just take a few million years to recover from the indigestion. The Candos School is a small thing, and there are now innumerable similar examples, so I don't want to exaggerate its importance, um, but they are art as communal life, not as business and not as activism. While I'm certain it's far too late to save us, nonetheless, it's the sort of direction I think we must be going. We must sometimes riot, other times build communities, but we must be constantly shape-shifting. We can move in and out of institutions and markets because they may have mattered in 1973, but they don't matter anymore. If there's no future, then the past also is irrelevant as a direct result. What finally matters is that we should be tending our garden, as Voltaire said, and our garden is the whole earth. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Ian. We have time for maybe one or two questions, if anybody has one. You just pop your hand up or bring the microphone around to you. Thank you so much for your talk. It's so refreshing to hear someone bring a question to art and um, capitalism. But what I want to ask you, as a political artist myself, is um, you brought up a lot of the notions of Althusser and some of the uh, uh, um, some of the later Marxists. Whereas I was in the union movement for a long time at, um, as a rank and filist in the difficult times of the 80s and went totally back to the Soviet Union, to the, the, um, the constructivists, to the period that they were in where they started afresh, where workers 
saw themselves in opposition to capitalists and where there was a total definition. Whereas I saw you go to the post-Marxist, to Althusser, Horkheimer, Adorno, where I don't lay my hope. And I was just wondering whether you could say something about Marxism um, today and art. And I don't see a conclusion in not doing art in the galleries as a solution. I see more of the change coming from the working class, but not the bureaucrats in the trade union movement. Um, so it's, it's back to it's, rank and file working class movement. I'll leave it I mean, there. No, well, I mean, it's, it's funny you should mention that because, because probably, um, you know, you can't, you know, this talk would be three hours long if I tried to include everything. Um, there's a hell of a lot that I left out. Um, one of the things I left out was what was most important to me in terms of trying to find my way through stuff way back in the 1970s, the early 1970s, was in fact exactly those Russian constructivist artists you're talking about. So to the degree I've ever had a had a artist hero, I'm not inclined to that have heroes, but but um, it would be Tatlin, and and it's not the obvious Tatlins, it's not the monument or anything like that. It's, it's the utilitarian stuff he did later on, you know, designing workers' clothes and, and more efficient stoves and things like this, you know, which is all terribly unglamorous stuff, but it's actually more useful for people's lives. And, and that whole Russian productivist movement was also incredibly difficult to find any information about it. No one was interested in it, you know, it's only in recent years that you've actually been able to, been able to find, find much about it. And... And I see a lot of that stuff as still, you know, a really interesting area that that provides a better a better model to lots of things. But but I'm, I mean, in terms of sort of galleries and things like that, I mean, I increasingly I just think this sounds really nihilist, but none of it matters anymore. So, which means I will now once where once I would have drawn the line at doing stuff in galleries, I'll happily do stuff in galleries now because I don't think it matters. Right, um, it's just it's just irrelevant, you know. Like I think all of that stuff has blend, blended together, and we've gone over another thing. There is a problem with art which claims to be political art is that a lot of the time it just becomes a niche form of consumerism, rather than rather than anything which actually has political effect, and that's that's a that's a problem. But I think the way one deals with all these problems and and the reason I, I had that selection of stuff, um, which could have been a wider one even, was that I've tended to regard every situation as a sort of design problem in which you use whatever will work in the situation. And that's related to who the audience are. You know, like you have different audiences. The art world is just one sort of audience, right? And a very small one. Workers for a particular union are one audience, and they're different to the workers from another union as well. There can be massive differences of all sorts, um, you know, of gender, of income, of geographical location, of all sorts of that. So you actually do it in a media that will work with that particular group of people. So you don't go into the union movement, for instance, say, you know, thank God I've arrived, you really needed an artist, you know. You go in and say, oh, you know, I could help do your journal, you know, and, you know, you won't even know who I am. 
you know. I mean, because that's the medium that will reach them effectively. And so, so rather than even worrying about theoretical positions about stuff, I tend to look at stuff in very pragmatic positions about what will work, and then I tend to find the theory to justify it afterwards, you know. Which is why the Adorno, like I said, I was doing stuff before I'd read Adorno. I only read Adorno afterwards and thought, yeah, okay, I get that, you know. So. Hi, and thank you very much for your talk, Janine Burke. Yeah. Um, I was very interested in all the things that you've had to say this evening and probably the lack of women artists in object and idea With was a huge thing and also the fact you didn't actually identify the woman who was sitting at Donald Brooks' feet. <laughs> oh, it's his wife, Phyllis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah. Um, so object and idea, I mean, you're privileging... Um, Brian Finnamore as being a really leading light in that, but I had understood that it was actually Peter Cripps and John Stringer who Cripps were more had, uh, the Stringer engaged was gone, but Cripps, with... Cripps was definitely really involved in it. That's without doubt. What, sorry? Peter Cripps was definitely really involved in it. And, and in, in amongst the few photos, there's actually photos of Peter helping doing the setup. So. Yeah, and he still got sacked from it. So, now yeah. I was just interested to know the kind of aesthetic like hierarchy in creating that exhibition. And I didn't actually realise that Brian Finnamore was a strong contender for that, but I'm, maybe it, I'm wrong. I, well, I can only speak from my own personal experience. I just, I just tend to think you're probably a little bit wrong because all of my dealings were with him. I knew the others. I knew all the others, right? And all my dealings were with him and he really pushed me about it, you know, and came up to, from Melbourne to see me to talk to me about it and stuff like that. Um, on the other hand, the selection of the actual artists, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Cripps or Stringer were both really involved in that. Right, and like I said, it's not exactly the selection of art. I would have added a few others, but I actually had a paragraph in there. I said, look, I would have added these people as well if I wanted a cross section of this. And then it struck me. That's when it really struck me that I couldn't actually think of any women artists who were even involved in that area. And that's not to say that they didn't exist. What I meant was they weren't receiving the prominence and the exhibitions and the stuff like that. And so I I left that out. Um, as a thing, because it just opened up a whole area of discussion which was going to derail things. But it was something I was really highly aware of and, and, and that was why within that same time span, you know, in that year or two, you know, when we were working, when we started the Andy Biennale stuff, built into it, it wasn't, it wasn't just amongst the people who triggered it off. Um, it wasn't just because of Vivian, for instance, that that stuff there. There was also a lot of support from men like me as well, you know, but of course, you know, those women were the driving thing, but, but so it became this joint operation between, between two sort of blocks of things. And, and of course, you know, the worst behaving people were the men who just, you know, some real idiots, you know. Um, they were discontented, but they didn't know what they were discontented about. And you know, all the usual, I'm not telling you anything, you know, you know what it was all like, you know. Um, um, but it was during that period when all that stuff was starting to build up and there was that group of women at the university around Vivian and, you know, who, who were really hugely important um, and hugely, hugely important. But that's exactly the point where the crossover is, the beginning of the women's art movement, the, you know, the beginnings of all the documentation and all of that, you know. It's, it's just that it's a, different, it's a different thing to this, unfortunately. I'd certainly give it full acknowledgement. I think you, you, you know, you're right to bring it up. Thank you.
Um, I just want to oh, I suppose make a few comments. I mean, I'm not an artist, but I work in an aesthetic field in architecture. Mm. And um, the question of utility for a long time was uh, maybe a kind of avant-garde idea in the architectural world that you could... But that, like you've always said, it got um, appropriated by um, developers into, you know, minimising yeah. buildings. And um, So I guess one of the things that um, um, I believe now and we try in where we work or people I work with is that we don't take... Um, we don't reduce things to their minimal, but we actually make them incredibly complex because... We work with, um, let's call it, builders. I've been on sites with people who actually really adore making complex things and difficult things, and they'll actually go out of their way to, to do it. But also people um, enjoy, let's call it stimulation in, in the architectural world. If you do something really interesting and let's call it pleasurable for people, they do, they do involve themselves. They do get something out of it other than they think it's just art they actually find out that they've, they're worthy people and that they're reason, it's a reasonable world because someone's providing them with that, that opportunity. And I think art needs to maybe get to that position where um, the involvement of complex ideas and things which are read by ordinary people should make a return to the, the art going. Yeah, look, uh, the, the point where I disagree with, disagree with that is just that like, for a long time, I, I mean, I, I keep using the word all art all the time. I don't think there is any such thing as art. I just don't think it exists, you know. And I, I think um, if only because when you think that by the time um, with, with sort of conceptual art, almost anything could be art, I mean, the real consequence of that is that nothing is art in actual fact, right? And so what you have to do is you start talking about, you reframe this, and you start talking about which actions and objects and events are culturally significant, right? Now, architecture has a great advantage in terms of this. It, good, bad, utilitarian, decorated, or whatever, you know, um, it's, it's got a clear position and role in the world, right? The world isn't going to sort of die because there aren't paintings. Um, and so it becomes a slightly different debate. They're like the, 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 the debate about it has to be framed slightly differently. I mean, as you'd know, there's a point where, where also architecture almost became conceptual architecture, you know, in, in a whole, whether we're talking about Cedric Price or Eisenman or all sorts of people like that, you know, where you go away, so far away from utilitarianism in architecture that it, that it becomes, you know, almost entirely useless. But, I mean, I, so I, I just tend to all the time, even though I use, throw the terms around all the time, I, I tend to take the attitude that, look, what, and, and this was again what I was talking about in the magazine where I, um, I, I the, the magazine I did on, on um, data visualisation, I was also saying, like, look, where do we actually find things that have got visual structure and visual content that might have cultural um, uh, significance now? It's quite likely they're going to be in areas like, like you know, data visualisation, right? And, and um, that was one area you could look at, you know, if you, if you wanted to go looking for stuff. I tend to think that saying something is art or that someone an artist now is something you really only do in retrospect. After, you've, after their work has had some cultural impact and um, has shown to have really major cultural significance, you say, okay, that person's an artist. So someone like P.A. Yeomans, who was an agriculturist, was also an artist. It wasn't just his farming stuff. He did 
magazines, he did educational courses, he 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 actually had media that, that generated all his stuff. And he set out to change the way people understood um, Australia, the Australian landscape, the world in general. And so I tend to use that as the assessment of it. I, mean, I know that doesn't deal exactly with what you're saying, but 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 I just think you have to step over the top of a lot of these categories and like at least here. In other cases, we might be talking about it differently, but in, in this context, I'm sort of trying to talk of a much wider, you know, overarching sort of discussion about it all. Mm. We might have time for just one more question. Oh, gosh, there's a lot. <laughs> I'm just going to... Sh- I'll give shorter answers. How's that? Mm. Yeah. Last one. Uh, thanks, Ian. Uh, given that context... Hello, Joe. ...that there's no <laughs> artists and there's no art... Um, uh, what, what, what are artists to do? And, and, and how can they survive inside the system without compromising, you know, through commodification? Well, some of the, They should just settle down. If, depending on what they want to do, you know, settle down to be commodified, you know? Just, I mean, it's not the end of the world, you know? Like, you can still do interesting, worthwhile things, right? You probably just have to accept that it's probably not going to have the same significance. I mean, I keep saying that... Look, art isn't going to, in that conventional sense, art isn't going to go out of existence. There's actually going to be more of it. There'll be more and more and more of it. That's actually the nature of commodification. It doesn't disappear. And and the other example I use all the time, which is like how you have to understand significance, is jousting, right? Jousting was the heart of medieval society. Everything revolved around it. There's actually more jousting in the world now than there ever was in the medieval period. And none of it matters in the slightest, you know? Lithgow has a jousting, annual jousting thing, you know, and it just doesn't matter anymore. Cultural significance is a different thing to simply the action and the thing itself. So settle down to being a commodified artist and paint, 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 you might make some money. It's a good thing. Everyone's got to make a living. Yeah. Um, so maybe sort of flipping that question in a way. Um, So I find that myself and a lot of my contemporaries are looking back upon events like Occupy Wall Street as being historicized in the same way as events like 1968. And you have books like Strike Art, presented by Yates McKay, who position Occupy Wall Street as an artistic movement. So you spoke about thinking about things in terms of design problems, also challenging maybe... um, or, you know, that resigned, pessimistic nature that we all fall into. I'm, Mark Fisher talks about the depathologization of depression, which is endemic, yeah. particularly in younger generations. Do you think it's damaging, in a way, to frame political and social movements in terms of artistic events? Um, is that part of depowering it? Well, you have one very bad example in the form of Adolf Hitler. Um, you know, artists, artists shouldn't necessarily have political power. They can be very bad at it. Um, it. It depends. You know, like the problem here is you're using terms that have multiple meanings. It's like Donald Brook talking about seven meanings of object. And Donald Brook also talked endlessly about the multiple different meanings of the word art, you know. Um, it... <laughs> If, if what you're doing is simply aestheticising... And again, you're getting straight back to, um, to um, 
you know, art in the age of mechanical reproduction too. If, if you know, it is, it is that whole problem of aestheticising aestheticizing politics, um, you know, can, is almost a direct road to fascism in some ways, you know, and, and that's actually problematic. But all of these things, I just tend to think, could come out differently if you go about them in a different way. I mean, Mark Fish is a really interesting writer in terms of a lot of that stuff, in actual fact, because because he's very good at dealing with complexity, you know, and and dealing with layers of of meaning inside things, you know, and so so I think to some extent he demonstrates how you can actually think through those things in in much more pragmatic ways, um, which is you know. He's a whole big subject in himself, really. But but I don't disapprove of the aestheticisation. It doesn't matter whether I do anyway, but I don't particularly disapprove of it. But I just tend to think, why does it matter? Like, why would you bother doing it? You know, you don't have to do that unless you're putting a loading on that which you think will make it sound better and sound more important. Well, it doesn't. Its importance is whether it's effective. And that's that's the criteria. Don't judge it in terms of whether you can actually impose a theoretical framework on it like that. Just judge it in terms of its effectiveness. Just, um, just a one, one further quick, um, elaboration on that is, is what about the idea in the case of, say, Occupy Wall Street or the Tent Embassy yeah. where, um, or a situationist event where an artistic intervention can create a new kind yeah. of meaning or reality or space? I mean, is there room for art to break open a space that didn't previously exist? Well, there's room for actions that'll do that, and they may be actions by artists, but I don't think, as I say, you don't think you need to think of them as just that they have art, you know, that they're, that they're art. I mean, I mean, the great example of this is surely um, the death of Marat, you know, go back to the, go back to the 18th century, or the 19th century. You know, and, and the thing about the death of Marat was hugely, that painting was hugely politically dangerous and politically effective, right? But really, it was media. Like, it wasn't art in the sense that we think of art now. It was one of the f few effective forms of media at the time. And so it was a media event. We just don't think of it as a media event. We think it as high culture now. So. Oh, hi, Ian. Um, I wanted to ask you, Greta Thunberg has called for a, a general strike in September, given the situation yeah. with climate change. In the lead-up to the last federal election, we didn't hear much from the unions in terms of focusing on climate, and I wanted to ask you what you thought we could do to get the trade unions more active on climate, and also what you think artists can be doing in the lead up to September. Hmm. Obviously, in the lead up to September, just artists just, just get out there and publicise it all they can. I mean, I'm totally supportive of it. Unions are a complex thing. I mean, unions, unions are democratic organisations. And because they are genuinely democratic organisations, you can't say any single thing about them. You know, like every union's different. Every union's got a different cross-section of members, you know. I mean, I actually think the single most significant political person in Australia you know, is Sally McManus. And, you know, you probably can't expect great change, I reckon, until Sally finally faces up to the fact that she's going to have to go to Parliament. Right now, she won't do it. She hates it, you know. And... Um, um, but she's a hugely important and charismatic figure and she is taking the trade union movement places where, um, you know, you never even thought it might go. But 
because the trade union movement has been under incredible pressure and has effectively been made illegal, and it really is like that far away from being illegal, there's a real limit to what they can do. And she's had to focus her attention on actually fighting back and rebuilding back from that. Um, until it's actually got that base rebuilt again, there's a real limit to what it can actually do. Um, there, are, there are some unions who already are totally supportive of climate change action. There are others that have members in the area. And this is what I was saying about going living in places like Laraling. You've got to actually got to go and... You know, unions have to represent those people as well, because they're all workers and they all have problems. And, and, and so it actually becomes very tricky exactly how they do it. Some of them can do it, some of them can't. Um, you just can't make a blanket statement about them. I know that's not very helpful, but you can't, you know. Uh, but I just do think, too, uh, one of the great things that's happened over the last 20, 30 years is the feminisation of the union movement. Like, like the leadership of the ACTU is women. Um, the leadership of lots of unions now is women. When at time, the blokiness of it for a long time was just unbearable, you know. Um, and now, you know, there are huge numbers of women in there and that changes the way things play out enormously. So I've got real hope for it, but I actually see them as so devastated by what's happened to them that they've, they're, you know, and, and constantly demonised. I see them as in a really difficult position. So it doesn't mean they won't do stuff, it just means they don't have the power to do stuff and they don't have the resources to do it. So. But other than that, artists should all just be, get out there and support, support it, do everything you can, publicise it, you know, help them do posters, help them do, you know, do anything you want. You use every media that you've got access to, use, use social media, use everything, just get out there and do stuff. Do memes, you know. Like, artists are supposed to be smart, you know, supposed to be visually capable, do memes and get them on social media. It does actually work, you know, so. Thanks, Ian. I think we're out of time. We have to leave it there tonight. Um, I'm sure there's more questions, but please do come and chat to Ian after the talk if you'd like to. Thanks, everyone, for coming and sitting with us for an hour and a half. Our next lecture is on Monday, the 8th of July, with Peter Kennedy, and we do have half-season passes on sale now if you want to come to the last four lectures in the series. So thanks for coming, and please join me in thanking Ian for his lovely talk. Thank you. You have been listening to an ACCA podcast, recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.